I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Pensions providers come under pressure to allow annuities holders to sell up and take advantage of the government's pensions reforms. The quality of a company's managers is one of the factors that drive its share price. But can individual investors ever really get the measure of a leadership team? And as we approach the deadline for filing our annual tax returns, we offer some essential tips on easing an often painful process. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's personal finance podcast. I'm James Pickford and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Joe Cumbo, Andrew Hill, plus a special studio guest, Gary Haynes of accountancy firm Baker Tilly. This week, the supermarket group Morrison's waved goodbye to its chief executive, Dalton Phillips, after years of disappointing results, capped by a particularly poor Christmas season. Markets clearly sided with the decision to oust Mr Phillips. Morrison's share price bouncing on the news that he was going. But equally, there are many cases where the departure of a chief executive triggers a fall in share price. One thinks of the market reaction to the illness and death of Steve Jobs, the charismatic founder of Apple. For a time, investors believed the success of Apple was so inextricably bound up with Mr Jobs that he was both the inspiration for its products and the management glue that held the company together. In fact, Apple has continued to thrive after his death. But both examples bring out one of the most difficult questions for investors. How much of a company's success, or failure, is tied up with the chief executive? And can an individual investor ever really have enough information about a manager's style and substance to make that judgment? Andrew Hill, the FT's management editor, has been looking into the issue for this weekend's edition of Money and is here to tell us about it. Andrew, management skill is such an important thing for any business, so it's an obvious thing for any investor to want to be able to assess. But it's not quite as simple as that, is it? No, it's not. I mean, we know that management does affect productivity, and we know that individual chief executives can have a a positive effect uh, and indeed can have a negative effect. But the question of how much of the share price movement or how much of the performance of the company is affected by individual managers uh, is still not clear, even to the academics and consultants who've, who've done work on this. And the other problem, obviously, is that it is extremely difficult for outside investors to spot some of the signals. So historic work 
done by academics and consultants demonstrates that there are certain management practices that tend to have a positive effect on productivity. But some of those wouldn't be visible unless you were prepared to do a lengthy questionnaire or or go and um, uh, traipse around factories and uh, interview managers themselves. There are occasionally executives who really stand out from the crowd. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the classic sort of star managers like Jack Welsh or Terry Leahy. Often they will retire, but sometimes they'll go on to run another business. Is it therefore a safe bet for investors to follow those people? Well, part of the problem um, is that some managers, you don't know the sustainability of the work that they've done at the uh, company that they were successful at until some years after. I mean, Terry Leahy at Tesco is a good example. He left on a high, but Tesco are now experiencing problems. His successor uh, was uh, not successful by the standards of uh, most investors, uh, and they've had to bring in an outsider to try and put things right. So you could argue that has uh, severely tarnished his legacy. Maybe they should have waited a couple of years. Of course, for investors, there's not always uh, much value in waiting. They want to know straight away. On the other hand, you've clearly got some uh, managers who do go on to do good work at other companies, develop a reputation as, say, turnaround specialists, for example. Richard Cousins at Compass is a a good example of that. So there are ways in which you can follow, uh, but it's a bit like the stock market itself. Past performance not always a guide to uh, future prospects. The corollary of what you said is that there are therefore some cases where bad managers find themselves in the right place at the right time and uh, you know, succeed in spite of their, their shortcomings as managers. But is it ever possible for investors to identify those kinds of cases? Well, I think there's a, some caution to be, to be applied in businesses which are dramatically affected by market movements. I mean, commodities, an obvious example in the UK mining sector, has been a number of CEO departures those CEOs at companies like Rio Tinto and BHP were in some ways regarded as being at the sort of top of their game. In fact, in my view, it was the commodities markets that were at the top of their game. And so when the uh, those markets dropped away, they were exposed as not being perhaps the great management geniuses that some people thought of them as. You talked about being prepared to or, or having the opportunity to traipse around factories and, and speak to management directly. Is there any evidence that professional investors who have that, that those opportunities do any better at this? Well, I spoke to some fund managers for this piece. Two of them that I spoke to said quite clearly that it was more art than science. The problem is that they face some of the same issues that uh, any outside retail investor would face in getting at the uh, essence of uh, good management. And they are also working in real time. So they don't get to wait necessarily years to decide on management. By that stage, the success has already been uh, priced into the shares. So for the average individual investor, it may not be realistic to expect them to to see the upside, as it were, to spot the upside. But is it therefore possible that, that, that one can see the warning signs where things are going wrong? Well, I think just to uh, come to the point about whether, whether outside investors can see any 
upside. Clearly, there are companies, small and medium-sized companies, where the link between management and the factory floor is more direct. In terms of the warning signs, I mean, there are traditional ones that people look out for. Among them might be a sudden decision to build a grandiose new headquarters. That might have got people worried about Royal Bank of Scotland before things went wrong there, for example. Clearly, a servile board or a chairman who is under the thumb of an autocratic chief executive is a bad sign. The fatal acquisition often made possibly in the last year of a uh, uh, chief executive's tenure, you know, the sort of legacy acquisition uh, or the transformational acquisition made by a company. And Morrison's, uh, when it bought Safeways years ago, would be a good example of that, is a bad sign. And finally, and I suppose uh, we would say this, I think oversensitivity to criticism by media or the analysts is often a sign that the chief executive has got too big for his or her boots. Thank you very much, Andrew. You can read more about the art of investing in management uh, in this weekend's FT Money cover story. Still to come on the show, more convulsions in the world of pensions. Should people who were sold annuities before George Osborne announced his thoroughgoing reforms of the market be able to sell their pensions? First, though, let's look at the annual ritual of the tax return. Many will pale at the thought of having to excavate their financial papers in search of their income or expenses, particularly where their affairs are more complex than normal. But for those obliged to file a self-assessment return, the January 31st deadline for doing so is nearly upon us. Even if there's no liability or you've already paid all your tax, you still have to file a return. There's no getting round it. Failing to meet it earns an automatic £100 penalty with a further £10 a day applied after three months. Nonetheless, a surprising 7% of people, perhaps overwhelmed by the scale of the task, missed the deadline for submission last year, a percentage that has remained roughly steady in recent years. The taxman has made things easier by allowing people now to file returns online, but there are other simple ways in which people can save themselves a great deal of heartache, mainly by spending some time gathering and preparing the right information before they file. Here with us to talk about the vexed question of tax returns is Gary Haynes of the accountancy firm Baker Tilly. Gary, welcome to The Money Show. First of all, why do you think so many people miss the deadline, even though most will know full well what will happen if they do? Is it really so hard? Thanks, James. Well, I I think it's probably down to human nature. It's putting the too difficult to do pile, and it really isn't if you're organised. But of course, lots of people are are very busy, and I suspect when you look at the 7%, it tends to be people who are very busy with their daily life and, and job and work and don't really get round to just getting online and putting the numbers into the boxes, which, as you say, is relatively straightforward. So what sort of information you know, should, should people typically make ready when, before, they, before they file? What tends to happen is people have this 31 January deadline date in, the, in their mind, so they put things off to 31 January. But, of course, things like your P60, if you're employed, which summarises your employment income, get sent to you pretty early on in the tax year, uh, sort of April, May time typically, and, and your statement of any, any benefits, the P11D from your employer, gets given to you around about July. If your tax return has some bank interest, normally the banks will have sent you some statement of interest fairly early on in the tax year as well. 
it tends to be where the, where you have more complicated source of income. So if you have an investment portfolio, it might not be till July, August until that's issued to you. Um, if you have some foreign source of income, it might be that because of different uh, uh, tax years in foreign jurisdictions that you don't get that information for, for you know until later in the year. So where information is coming through um, at different timescales d- during the course of a year. That could be a reason that that causes you to delay filing a return when you could do it earlier on. You've had a lot of experience helping people with uh, tax returns. Are there yes. any classic howlers that people commit when uh, going through this process by themselves? I think it is forgetting um, uh, source of income. It does happen that I know rates of bank interest are pretty low these days, but um, uh, occasionally something will have matured, a bond might have matured in the year, and somebody's forgotten about that, so they don't put it on. Property income, for example, there, there, is, a, there is a 10% wear and tear allowance that uh, those who let out property uh, furnished can claim, and sometimes that, that's forgotten. Simply forgetting that somebody that you've sold something can be forgotten about and, and it's not put on the tax form. But of course, these are sources of not only income, but gains that you need to report. On the positive side, are there, are there any tax reliefs that people should be looking out for? Any, anything that people typically uh, may miss um, or have missed in the past? If you're self-employed, there, there's lots of things that can be deducted uh, and, and making sure and, and, and perhaps taking advice on the things that can be deducted would be worthwhile. There are, if you're employed, for example, things like subscriptions that are paid which are work-related can be deducted as well and they, they can easily be forgotten. If your employer, for example, reimburses you for some of your car travel but not up to the full allowance permitted by HMRC, you can claim an additional amount. And, of course, there's obvious things like making sure you've fully claimed your personal allowances and uh, and capital gains tax exemptions. So, so there are things, and, of course, I would say it's well worth taking advice on the things that, uh, that you can claim. What about people who have filed a self-assessment return over the years, but their tax affairs have become progressively simpler? Mm. And are they, are they forever locked into this annual ritual? Thankfully not. Uh, at least up till a couple of years ago, if you were issued with a tax return form, you had to send it back, even if you had no source of income or no liability. Uh, a couple of years ago, that changed. You can, you could apply to HMRC to say, you've issued me with a tax return. I no longer have source of income, which uh, mean I have a liability. Could you cancel that return which has been issued? If you are in that position now, uh, it's probably a little bit late in the day, and I would suggest that you still file the return, even if you have no liability, and put a note on the last page of the return there's there's a big blank box we typically call the white space and you can make a white space note saying I no longer have whatever source of income and therefore don't expect to have any future liability to tax please remove me from self-assessment and HMRC should remove you from self-assessment of course if you do have a source of income again in the future uh, which gives rise to a liability you do need to notify HMRC thanks very much that was Gary Haynes of accountancy firm Baker Tilly And there's more about how to file a self-assessment return in this weekend's FT Money, available as part of the Weekend FT on both Saturday and Sunday. You can read online at ft.com slash money or on tablets using the new FT Web app. On to our final item for today. As if there weren't already enough going on in the world of pensions, Steve Webb, the pensions minister, has set the cat among the pigeons by suggesting that current annuity holders ought to be able to sell off their pensions to be able to take advantage of the new freedoms that come in in April. 
Complaints have been on the rise among those who were obliged to buy annuities before the government announced its massive shake-up last year. Given the choice, some say they would never have bought an asset with such a poor record of investment performance. They feel they've got the raw end of the deal and Mr Webb is sympathetic to their cause. But is it really the case that annuity holders would be better off selling to a third party for a lump sum? And is it likely that Mr Webb will get what he wants just four months before a general election? Joe Cumbo has been looking into the annuity backlash for FT money. Joe, are annuity holders right to be angry? These are, after all, investment vehicles that provide them with a guaranteed income for life. You can certainly understand the frustrations of people who won't benefit uh, from the flexibilities which are being offered to future pensioners. Many people, this is before uh, the reforms were announced uh, last year, locked into annuities at record low rates and they're stuck with them for life and the freedoms won't be extended to them. So what Steve Webb wants to do, as you've summarised, is extend the freedoms to people with existing annuities to give them the choice to cash in that income, turn it back into a a lump sum. How would annuity sales work in the sense that who would buy them? And, And do we have any idea of how many people would want to sell up? Well, this is still very early days, but the broad idea would be either a marketplace would grow where people would say, look, I've got an annuity to sell, you know, what price will you bid for it? So that would be a kind of market approach and we would expect that it would be insurance companies who would buy back the income or a customer could go back to their company, you know, something a little bit simpler and just say, look, I want to cash in my income. I want to turn it back into a lump sum. Do you want to buy it back from me? There are millions of people with annuities because they've been sold for many, many, many years. The market here is potentially huge. But there will be a large rump of people 10 years ago or so who got a really good deal compared with what people have got in the last five years. Annuity rates have been at record lows. They're probably quite happy to sit on their annuity income. No, you wouldn't get a good value or such a good return on it and turning that income back into cash. But certainly people who have been obliged to buy them in recent years when uh, rates have been at record lows would probably be the ones most um, keen to consider to sell that annuity. And what does the annuities industry itself think about this proposal? Well, there's been quite a strong backlash from um, commentators and some within the investment industry have described it as crackpot, largely um, highlighting the potential concerns and worries that people, while the idea of getting money back in an annuity, which might be perceived as poor value, uh, sounds seductive, the reality is, is that what cash might be offered for that could be pretty damn poor and insurers who have perhaps um, sold an annuity at a poor rate to a customer might get a second bite at the cherry to to get you know up, up to offer a poor deal to the same customer so those kinds of concerns are all also floating around but there is also a call from individuals as well too we've got a, an email this week from from someone who who said yes I've got an annuity and I'm not really happy about it I want the choice to do this I'm aware that it might not be uh, a great deal but it's my choice I want the, the choice 
voice to extended uh, to me just to give you an example of the circumstances of individuals who might benefit from having that option. This woman says she has a final salary pension, which is her main source of income, but she was forced to turn a £12,000 pot, another pot that she had a pension uh, savings, into an income, and that's only delivering her nine fifty a week. That's £9.50 a week. Hmm. She says... I'm 66, I'm moving house, that money would really come in handy if I could turn that income into a lump sum and help pay with my legal expenses. In that circumstance, that extending that choice would make a lot of sense for that individual. So Mr Webb has spoken about this and offered his support, Um, but what do opposition politicians think and what's the likelihood of it actually coming to pass? We haven't heard much from the opposition. Uh, My guess is, is that it's are resonating quite loudly with the electorate and it probably wouldn't be a good idea for the opposition to stand up and say that they disagree with something that potentially is tuning into what voters want. So there's been a silence here, but there is no chance of this getting through before the May general election. There would have to be a consultation launched by the government and before this became law. So we're a long, long way off. Thanks very much, Joe. There's lots more detail on pensions reforms in this weekend's FT Money. You can also find out about the complex relationship between the price of petrol at the pump and the tax and duty it incurs. We report on a bumper year for investment trusts. We have the latest from our regular columnists, Merrin Somerset-Webb, Ken Fisher and FT Money editor Jonathan Ely, plus highlights from this week's Investors Chronicle. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me... Andrew, Joe, and our special studio guest, Gary Haynes of Baker Tilly. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.